0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: It's creating its own little enclave of like, you know, you can work, rest and play here. And this is the type of lifestyle you have to live in order to sustain this life of being in the middle of the city. But the apartments are 22 floors above the actual retail bit. And so it's this strange dynamic of let's enjoy the best bits of the city, but let's not engage with the reality of it.
2: The systems that we trust in to know have broken down.
1: You know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house.
2: But I've learned that even when it doesn't go well, I can be okay.
1: What's the best way to understand the world we live in?
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Justine Toe.
0: We're riffing slightly on Grand Designs on Life and Faith this week. And today we're talking about buildings and the spaces we live in and how they express our ideals and aspirations. We'll also be touching on our connection, sometimes spiritual, sometimes profound, with architecture and the built environment. I'm looking forward to this, Justine.
2: Yeah, me too. Are there any particular places that you feel a strong connection to?
0: Well, I have to admit I can relate somewhat to the being a big sports fan to the idea of the sacred turf of Wembley Stadium or the SCG or the MCG. (laughs) Yeah, I I can, but I know that's probably not what you're thinking of today.
2: (laughs) Hmm. Okay, so anything else then?
0: (laughs) Yes, I I love the thought of... The attachment we have to places, it could be your home, perhaps the home you grew up in and the memories and all the things and the emotion that's attached to those places. It seems that the space itself, is something significant about that. I do I believe in something powerful and profound going on for us when we remember those things. They're important to us.
2: Yeah, definitely. I remember a friend of ours, their beloved family home um, was sold once the elderly mother passed away. And I remember at a family gathering, I asked uh, the guy, you know, how do you feel about your home? It's no longer your home, but you've lived so much of your life there. And he said that sometimes he drives there and sits outside. Can you imagine? In his car. Mm. And um, yeah, I've done, it's just, I've
0: done the same thing, actually.
2: Yeah. And it's strange because, you know, if you hear that on paper and you're like, oh, it's you know, is is that something you want to be seen doing necessarily? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it really does resonate uh, that we have that strong attachment to those places where so much went down, <laughs> where we became the people we are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the and the events, those moments that are so significant to you. Yeah, I do wonder if there's something about the space itself. I, I remember talking to a minister of a church that had burnt down, and he st- was really struck by how significant that was for so many people who'd had parts of their, it might be their weddings the baptism of their children whatever it might have been funerals they were devastated by the loss and it meant more to them than just the you know the physical building itself
2: which people probably didn't realize perhaps until it was gone
0: i think that's right yeah Well, today on Life and Faith, we're bringing you a chat that Justine had with Camilla So, who's pursuing a Master's in Architectural History at the University of New South Wales, as well as teaching there, and in recent years at the University of Notre Dame.
2: Yeah, what kicked all of this off was an article that Camilla wrote in the Catholic Weekly that I found. She was writing about how there's this plan for a new luxury set of apartments above the old David Jones building in Sydney, and so, she was kind of reflecting in that column what it would be like that uh, you've got the the new luxury apartments, you've got Hyde Park in Sydney, a very prominent kind of um, park in Sydney. And then on the other side of that, you've got St Mary's Cathedral. And she was almost mm-hmm. reflecting on what kind of conversation these two structures might have with each other in terms of what they project, the values mm-hmm. they project, and their aspirations as well.
0: Mm, but Fascinating I have, sort of dynamic there.
2: Yeah, no, totally. Uh, but I have to apologize in advance. This is a very Sydney-centric episode. (laughs) We're going to be hearing about Sydney Opera House, Sculptures by the Sea, Vivid Festival, so these sorts of events in the Sydney calendar. And I will say that the episode does slightly rely on familiarity with Sydney City, places like Market Street, Martin Place, Hyde Park. But having said all that, I have to say that Camilla is actually from Perth and she's the one who brings up all these places. So (laughs) get away um, with it. Yeah. I hope you can accept my disclaimer. I started our chat by asking her if there was a building or public space that she feels a connection to.
1: I really like the General Post Office on Martin Place in Sydney. I just find that it's such a beautiful and grand building and there's this sense of the arcades and how they invite the people to kind of, you know, linger and to be in that public space. And I think it's also very historically significant because the General Post Office was actually the building that created Martin Place and created that civic space in Sydney. So it has that beautiful grand feel, like, you know, it has that kind of old world quality about it and, you know, just even going inside, there's this kind of sense of theatricality and, um, yeah, just that kind of liveliness that I really love. So I think that's a building that I've always found really quite beautiful in Sydney. Can you expand more on what you just said about how the post office created Martin Place? Sure. So actually the government architect at the time, James Barnett, when he was creating the general post office, the road at the time was quite narrow and there were these old buildings around and so James Barnett, having been trained in England, he really wanted to create this idea of civic space in Sydney and there wasn't really anything like it at the time so he actually proposed for, you know, these buildings to be knocked down in front of Martin Place. At the time when he was building it, it didn't happen but eventually it got put in place and, you know, that whole plan about expanding Martin Place down to Macquarie Street became more of an idea and, yeah, it eventually happened. So it was really actually the General Post Office that was the beginning of that. Oh,
2: wow. And so this is like, what, early 20th century? 1800s. 1800s. And Mm -hmm. it's so strange because Motton Place is such a key site where, you know, like the Anzac Day style memorials happen as well. And
1: I guess it's really interesting because, you know, obviously the General Post Office was a post office and at that time it had so much more significance than what we know now because we're so used to, you know, just having online shopping and so forth. But back in the day, like, everyone went there to post, mail. That was the only place where people could have a connection to the wider world. And so that's why it was imbued with such kind of civic significance and meaning, like even the arcades and so forth were created to invite people in and, you know, the ornaments and things and it was actually seen as this central point where Sydney could connect to the world. And so it was actually, that's part of the reason why it was envisioned that, you know, Martin Place would evolve from this because it was such a central part of Sydney life at the time. So Camilla, if I was a student in one of your classes, yes.
2: can you give me a working definition of civic
1: life? What do we mean when we say these words? Okay, so civic life, so I'll connect it to Aristotle, like, you know, the philosopher at the time, he was talking about his politics and he distinguished between what we call the private realm and the public. Public realm and so the private realm is the place of the home so you know like where you have the relationships between like I guess the husband and the wife the children the servants and so forth and that was seen as very kind of like set dynamic, whereas in the public realm, that was where people would come together in public from different places, different backgrounds and so forth. And it was the place where people would dialogue and, you know, come to ideas about, you know, how to rule society. So I guess really like the beginnings of democracy. People, you have these dialogues about, you know, how to live in the city together, how to kind of navigate the kind of social issues and so forth that arise. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, right. So it's about how we live together, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Let me bring you to this um, fabulous opinion piece you had published in the Catholic (laughs) Weekly fairly recently. You were talking about how St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney is getting quite a glamorous high-rise neighbour on Mm -hmm. the other side of Hyde Park. Yes. So on the other side of Hyde Park is the former David Jones flagship Sydney store, but it's going to get a set of high-rise apartments on top of it. Can you tell us why did this grab your attention?
1: Yeah, so it's actually really funny. When I set out to write the article, that wasn't actually my original intention to write about 111 Casa, Which is the
2: set of high-rise yes, apartments. Yes, yes, yeah.
1: it is, yeah. So yeah, I read this book by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love, and in that book, he talks about something called a secular liturgy. And so a secular liturgy is essentially like, you know, something like a shopping centre or even a... Big stadium and so forth, where you actually realize that in the same way that you're formed in a church, where you know, like you might do things like pray and kneel and you know, listen to the liturgy in the secular liturgy, you're also formed by the practices that are around you. So, say, in for, those stadium yeah. or shopping centers, yeah, spaces. so say, for example, like a shopping center, you know, like he talks about how people are kind of fed into this mode of consumerism when they go into a store where they're made to feel like you know, a particular product is going to fulfill them, is going to complete them, and so they consume this thing thinking that it will fulfill them and they leave and they just kind of feel empty and they're drawn to entering into that spiral again and again so james k a smith talks about how these secular liturgies in the world are actually forming people as much as they would if you go to a church
2: okay so then can you set side by side for us mm. what's the sort of liturgy as you put it of this glamorous high rise 111 castle ray Versus St. Mary's Cathedral, because yeah. you did kind of spell this out. Yeah, in your piece. yeah,
1: absolutely. So it's just really interesting because 111 Castro, when I was reading about it, you know, like the developers were saying things like, oh, you know, back in the day, people work from nine to five. And that was the standard working hours. But nowadays people work from nine to six a.m. And so we have to be able to cater for them and, you know, have food downstairs and have a concierge to be able to cater for their social life so that they can organize it if they don't have the energy to. And so it's almost as if the actual building itself and the way it's designed. So, you know, it's kind of like luxury shopping downstairs and premium office spaces. And then you have upstairs 22 stories of apartments that are, you know, like one apartment sold for 35 million. So, you know, in kind of setting that, standard for this luxury living for this crime living in the city it's almost as if it's almost as if it's creating its own little enclave of like you know you can work rest and play here and this is the type of lifestyle you have to live in order to sustain this life of being in the middle of the city being able to enjoy you know the best of it but then I guess it's really interesting because you know like the apartments are 22 floors up above the actual retail bit and so it's quite interesting because in a sense you know they talk about the apartments as you know having this beautiful views, you know, all these premium, you know, like the Hyde Park and St. Mary's and all these other icons of the city – but then you can also be comfortable in, in your luxury and in your sophisticated apartment. And so it's kind of You can this, see
2: the city, but you don't have to engage yeah, with it in exactly. a way. exactly. <laughs> it's
1: this strange dynamic of let's enjoy the best bits of the city, but let's not engage with the reality of it and you know the kind of busyness and the chaoticness of the city itself. And so it's this strange dynamic of wanting to allow a person to live in the city at the expense of being very removed from its actual life. And, you know, I guess St. Mary's I saw as a contrast to that because, you know, people do get annoyed sometimes about, you know, people coming in and sometimes you have tourists and all that stuff, like during the liturgy and people get annoyed. But,
2: you know. So you mean while there's a yeah, service? Yeah, while there's a some service. Yeah. But
1: the thing is that that in itself shows that it is in the middle of urban life and it is kind of steeped in that urban life and doesn't close itself from it. So it's just really interesting that I guess these two buildings I saw had very different visions of how a person is meant to engage in the city and be able to live in it.
2: You're about to hear Camilla make reference to QVB but of course this may not be that familiar to people who don't live in Sydney. I should have asked her to clarify this but I just didn't want to break her train of thought. So she means the Queen Victoria building in central Sydney. It's quite a grand destination these days right in the centre of the city but it wasn't always this way. So back to Camilla again.
1: It's really fascinating because actually Market Street itself has a very interesting history in the sense of how it's evolved in terms of its public spaces because where QVB used to be was actually the first central marketplace in Sydney. People would go there for their food and for buying everything. So it was like this public realm in the very traditional sense. But then obviously as time went by and as the city expanded, that need for that central public market wasn't necessary anymore and so you know you have in the 1920s things like the state theater that introduced cinema and David Jones at the time that you know was so exciting because it was the first lift and you know like people (laughs) would would actually go there for day trips and you know it was an actual kind of like excursion for them and so you kind of start with this excitement of you know industrialization brings but then essentially that keeps evolving into something that becomes more of like a luxury market and so something that really really struck me as I was walking down Market Street and doing my research is that when you leave Hyde Park, is literally everything you see on the street is just luxury brands. So like Prada, Miu Miu, it's like all those ones. And it's like, there's nothing for the everyday person. Mm. All the spaces for the everyday person is either in the shopping center or like, you know, upstairs on like, you know, the top floor, the bottom floor. It's almost as if the actual spaces that Catered to everyone are hidden and the only spaces that have a place on the street front are the ones that are luxury brands and so I actually saw that 111 Castle Ray was almost like you know that and steroids. The realisation of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX. We're hearing Justine's chat with Camilla So about how buildings and public spaces tell a story about the city, what we value, who belongs, and what we aspire to. This is an extraordinary building that had a remarkable birth. The competition for the Sydney Opera House took place in the late 1950s, and the building took 14 years to construct. I have to say, I've seen some long projects, but this probably takes the cake. Wow. What Hudson magically did was so avant-garde, and so unlike anything else on the planet that would come to be an icon, an emblem for the country. That, of course, was Kevin McLeod from Grand Designs. He visited the Opera House in 2018 to see how its renovations were proceeding. Now, Camilla's research for her master's also concerns the Opera House. She aims to explore how the building expressed civic ideals of the time. But what does that mean?
1: The Sydney Opera House, you know, like that was the competition came out in around like 1957, and so at that time, that was obviously following, you know, World War Two and a lot of the worldwide efforts at the time to rebuild cities that were destroyed. And obviously, in rebuilding cities, you know, and having come from, you know, things like the Nazi regime and so forth, a lot of architects and artists at the time are really wanting to create things that would reflect more of, I guess, uh, more spaces that invited people. to be able to you know like express themselves to be able to kind of have public demonstrations and so forth I guess part of that is that architects also wanted to create buildings that would reflect more of a quality of creativity of freedom of expression and so all of these things were kind of bubbling on the surface when the Sydney Opera House competition was instigated what I'm doing in my research is I'm trying to understand the Sydney Opera House in that context and in that context of you know how was that idea of freedom of expression expressed both in its architecture and in the public spaces that were being created around it
2: okay because i immediately think of how no war was written
1: Absolutely. on the the yeah. sails of the sydney opera house yeah. in protest
2: against the mm-hmm. iraq war i think so that would have been yes. 2003 maybe mm-hmm. but are you saying that this is a realization of what maybe was on the radar of people trying to build...
1: Yeah, so I guess it's funny you say that because, you know, in 1943, so this was when a document called The Nine Points of Monumentality was written... And it was a theorist, well, it was written with three people, but then the main theorist I'm looking at is Siegfried Gideon. And he actually talks about this idea of buildings being built with this broad kind of and wide surfaces where projections could be made or murals could be put on by artists to be able to, you know, engage with the public, to be able to kind of reflect the spirit of the time. I remember reading that and being like, oh, this is written in like 1940. But here I am in Sydney and, you know, back when I just moved here in 2017 and I'm going you know, this is being realized like 70 years after. And that's so fascinating. And I guess from my research, it doesn't seem like Utson had, I mean, Yon Utson, so he was the person who designed the Sydney Opera House. I don't think he had that in mind, but just the fact that, you know, the Sydney Opera House was almost created as this sculptural entity where, you know, it's put on this platform where you can basically see it from all sides, has these kind of wide public spaces around it so that you can behold it as a monument. And it's almost as if, that dynamic itself and the way that it's designed actually then lends itself to that form of expression. So things like Vivid Festival, you know, Mm. like it's very much like, you know, I couldn't imagine Vivid Festival without the Sydney Opera House. And the fact that you always see those pictures of the sales and the projections and so forth whenever Vivid Festival comes. And so it's so interesting that even with a festival like that, where it's working with very temporal means of projections and so forth, it still requires those permanent institutions, those permanent monuments to be able to make a statement, to be able to have a place in creating that public life and creating that activity.
2: And I think I'm right in saying that Vivid was initially like a a midwinter sort of yeah. event. So it's yeah, so, yeah. like, you know, when the urge is to stay home and to Absolutely. rug up, it's like, no, come to the city, yeah. experience it, yep. take a photo mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I believe that you sometimes have mixed feelings about you know our consumption of these spaces as yeah. well, right? We we take the selfie mm-hmm. outside of Vivid and then and then we post it on Instagram, <laughs> right? Tell me, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so you know, like I just think it's quite interesting because obviously in the 1940s when Siegfried Gideon was writing about projections and buildings, he didn't have Instagram on mind. <laughs> And I guess it's quite fascinating that what would have been an ideal kind of means of creating that, you know, civic life, those festivities and so forth. It has been transformed by the presence of social media and the way that we now engage in public space in the sense that sometimes we primarily engage with public space through our phones. Yeah. I still remember when I first moved to Sydney, I was so shocked when I went to Sculptures by the Sea and I was in Tamarama and I saw this platform and I was a bit curious. So I climbed up and I saw that there was a plaque there. And it said, this platform is here so that you can take photos for your Instagram. Oh, like wow. That was literally the only reason why that structure was built. Yeah. And so I just find it so fascinating that nowadays, a lot of our art, a lot of our architecture, a lot of the projections that we see it's not so much that we enjoy them for themselves and we attend to the content that's being put there. It's really just about creating an Instagram experience and about creating this sense of, oh, you know, you want people to take a picture, you want people to post it, and, you know, you want that kind of civic dialogue to happen more online rather than in person. So I just find that very bizarre, and I just feel like there's something that's not quite right about that. Yeah, well, it's interesting,
2: isn't it? Because it's another way in which our public spaces become Mm. reflections of what we want and what we prioritize, right? We want to be able to navigate the world through our phones. Mm. Now, as we record this, we've seen cities around the world emptied because of lockdown. And I think that there are now plans underway to sort of revitalize the Sydney Central Business District here anyway and, and elsewhere. What aspirations would you like to see as we go forward in terms of our aspirations for public space and how to bring life back to
1: the city? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely think being able to bring people back into the city, but not so much to kind of just, you know, like have this experience of, you know, seeing a building with lights and then going away. I think we have to then introduce activities and so forth in that space to be able to allow people, invite people to kind of linger, invite people to actually connect with each other. So, you know, like things that, you know, will actually facilitate conversation or say, for example, you know, even if you had something like Vivid to at least have other things around like food stalls or maybe even talks or things that would you know like be thought-provoking or create conversation because I think that's what people are missing they're coming into the cities but they're not actually engaging with each other so I think if we do have these things we need to have these other things to be able to allow people to dialogue to be able to actually enjoy each other's company especially because we've really been lacking in that over the past few years.
0: What's the role of the church in all this? Now Camilla's already spoken about St Mary's Cathedral being a genuinely public space open to everyone versus the exclusivity of those luxury apartments planned for Castle Ray Street. But what about the way we feel about buildings like churches, even if we're not particularly religious? Almost three years ago, Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire during Holy Week. It was a shocking scene Justin, You remember this well, of course.
2: Yeah no absolutely i remember you wrote about it right it was i did yeah
0: yeah, I was writing about it at Easter, and I was trying to sort of look at the desolation of Good Friday, which the burning of the cathedral seemed to capture that so beautifully, but also the the kind of pointing towards the rebuilding as symbolic of the hope of Easter Sunday. But it was a very kind of moving time, wasn't it? There was a journo at the time, American journalist, who wrote about this and said, why has the burning of Notre Dame moved so many and he went on to say, because we believe in beauty, majesty, faith, art, history, and the human expressions thereof, we recognize in this cathedral our common humanity. And then, quite profoundly, a scar now emerges in our connections to our past, our future, and each other. And I think that's largely what we're talking about here. And we saw extraordinary scenes, not just then of the devastation, but of people gathered outside this famous iconic building, and they cried, they prayed, they comforted each other, and they sang hymns.
1: I think what was really fascinating that I found about the building of Notre Dame is that, you know, Obviously, I was in Sydney at the time and I knew so many people who were upset about it, even people who maybe hadn't been there before and so forth. So I just found, wow, you know, like how is it that a building that's not even part of an everyday person's life can be so, I guess the loss of it can be so deeply felt and so deeply mourned. And I also think it's because, you know, like as human beings, we're not just, we don't just kind of walking around these abstract values and ideals and so forth. Like those things are represented in the things that we create. So, you know, things like art, things like architecture. And I think when that's destroyed, there's almost kind of like a fundamental shift where like we kind of feel, I mean, I maybe I personally feel this kind of violation where it's like, oh, you know, like the physical fabric has now shifted and like, you know, this thing that represented my values that is attached to like this thing that I'm a part of is suddenly gone and you know the representation of that and that presence of that and so I think that's why you know like even though perhaps you know the faith is kind of waning in France it's still very much a part of their culture it's still very much a part of their history and so to lose that monument is almost like losing a part of your identity. You
2: mean as the city? Mm, mm,
1: As a city and even as a person, you know, because you grow up again, you know, like being nourished like physically by these institutions and kind of knowing that, you know, if when you look at a church, you know, okay, that's part of maybe perhaps not part of my personal life, but part of the life of my ancestors, part Mm. of the life that my parents grew up with. And so there's almost a part of your personal history that's destroyed when that goes away. Well, I mean, Mm. gosh,
2: it's... uh, was made in the 12th century. Mm. So this is what's gone down in that time, just to give a glimpse. Crusades, the Renaissance, French Revolution, two world wars. Mm. So it's seen as the heart of the city. Absolutely. In some ways. And so there's a lot of... Culture. There's a lot of world history that is um, bundled up in that place, and
1: it's pretty amazing as well that you know Notre Dame still remained as such a prominent monument, especially following the French Revolution and so forth. So the fact that oh, which it was kind quite of, secular, you mean? Like yeah, trying to, yeah, yeah. And so the fact that it even persisted through that and has still, you know, like had its place in the civic realm, I think, is very significant. Mm. So the fact that you know this thing had persisted and has now was destroyed, I think, was that was a real shock to people, you know? Yeah. Mm.
2: People often talk about how churches can offer space for contemplation. Yeah, Like people might, you know, whip out their phones and make (laughs) notes or read or Instagram the beautiful, you know, features, Mm. etc. But that's an interesting thought as well, right? Like in in a city where we're otherwise assaulted by stimulation, maybe the provision of a vast, empty, quiet space that might kind of help your thoughts lift to the ultimate. Maybe this is a particular kind of contribution that the church can make. What do you think about that? Well, it's
1: funny you say that, Justine, because the renovations for Notre Dame right now, they're actually considering the projection of Bible verses in the church.
2: Okay, so what do you think about that?
1: (laughs) I think that actually reflects the fact that as a society, we've lost our capacity for contemplation. You know, like we've lost the capacity to just be still in a place and be able to just be present and to just pray and that we have to somehow have these visual and technological aids to help us to do that. Because, you know, you can even see that in art galleries, you know. Like Mm. if you go to a show, it's like sometimes you have to have like a little string quartet playing in the background or, you know, have these kind of visual video animations to tell you the story about the artist. And so there isn't that sense of... Allowing people that silence to be able to just be still and to be in a place. And I think, unfortunately, that's being reflected in the proposed renovations for the Notre Dame church.
2: Right. Okay. So this is interesting because perhaps if churches are trying to think about how do they make themselves responsive Mm. to the needs of the 21st century Mm -hmm. city, it sounds like you're saying remain in the 12th century in a way, right? (laughs) Like, be vast and empty and cold and um, don't distract people. Is Mm. that what you might say? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think that's an interesting question, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, what is the space of contemplation? Is that even a thing now, you know, or is that something of the past? But I think... I don't know, like even in lockdown, you know, I, I knew so many people who would talk about, oh, you know, they go for all these daily walks and, you know, you go to the park and experience nature and appreciate that again. And so many people I knew, like, which was really interesting, a lot of them were like, oh, we're just so sick of our phones. We're just so sick of all the noise and having to be on our phones all the time. And we just wanted, you know, time off the screen and just quality time with people. So I think that that desire for silence, that desire for deeper connection or even for deeper thinking, is instilled in every human person. And perhaps we try to find it in different ways, but essentially I think is always something that we will never be able to kind of get rid of you know like even though sure maybe it was manifest in the 12th century through you know like cathedrals and so forth but I think even now the fact that you know there's the whole movement towards mindfulness there's the whole idea of people kind of now you know deleting social media and so forth I think there is still something within us that yearns for that and I think that's being seen in the way that people are responding to the you know the fact that we have been in this technology saturated place like especially during lockdown and seeing the limitations of what that can offer us.
2: Yeah, so a move towards spaces that help us to think and be quiet. Mm. Wow, what an innovation with all our thirst for the new and the kind of stimulating, but yeah. it may be that what we need right now is I to Because I mean, be even quiet. on an
1: everyday level, you know, like when people working the city and so forth, you know, like I usually see people go to Hyde Park or, you know, go down to Circular Quay for their lunch break and, you know, they're just sitting in front of the water or the park and just eating their sandwich and not doing anything. And I can see that, you know, that's probably the only time of, I guess, real quiet and rest that they can take take from their working hours in that day so you can see that it's still ingrained in every person and you know like if possible each one of us are usually longing for that and try to find opportunities for that in our daily lives
0: You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe.
2: Yes, and thank you, Camilla, for coming into the CPX studio to record this interview. It was really exciting for me because this was my first in-person chat since lockdown, which is always far better than doing it over Zoom. I'm going to post a link to Camilla's piece on St Mary's Cathedral and the 111 Castle Row development in the Catholic Weekly, as well as some other pieces she's published on ABC Religion and Ethics.
0: At CPX, we're having conversations about things that matter. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend and leave us a rating or review. It helps people discover our show. Next week.
1: I had been a professor for eight or so years before things started to take a turn for the worse. For several years, the reality kind of lived up to the dream. But at some point, I would wake up in the morning just filled with dread, for reasons that I didn't fully understand. It was no longer the dream job that I had once had.